You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. When a big storm hits, all you are hoping for in the moment is that everyone is safe. Unfortunately, not everyone is. But even when a storm like Fiona passes with minimal loss of life, it's only in the days following that we come to understand the true scale of its impact. There are thousands of customers still without power this morning across parts of PEI in Nova Scotia, and it's more than a week since Fiona swept through Atlantic Canada. The tens of thousands of people across Atlantic Canada still in the dark. Prince Edward Island and Cape Breton still hardest hit. There's still no power here, and the poles are snapped. The trees have fallen down like dominoes. It's now closing in on two weeks since Fiona struck Atlantic Canada. If the area got off easy, we would have known it by now. Instead, it is quickly becoming clear that for many areas and hundreds of thousands of people, this storm will leave a mark. Power is still out for many. Governments, including the Prime Minister, yesterday have promised hundreds of millions of dollars in aid. But it may simply not be enough to replace the sheer damage to homes and businesses that have all but been wiped off the map. The infrastructure, in some places, is just in ruins. It seems odd to say it this way, but the tough part might still be in front of Atlantic Canadians. How do you rebuild from such devastation? At what cost? Where and how do you live while you do it? And as one reporter put it, what happens when a community that thrives on the sea comes to fear what it can do? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Greg Mercer is the Atlantic Canada reporter at The Globe and Mail. He's been covering the devastation left behind by Fiona. He is the reporter I mentioned who posed the question about what you do when the place you love becomes the place you fear. Hey, Greg. Hi, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me. Um, I hope you and, and everybody else out there are staying safe. Yeah, we're slowly picking up the pieces, and we were lucky where we live. We were uh, a little bit removed from the worst of it, but certainly there's a lot of folks in Atlantic Canada still dealing with the, the fallout from this storm. There's no question. And we're going to get into that. First, I have to ask you from some of your uh, pieces, you, you've recounted some harrowing tales. I have to ask you to start with Brian Osmond from Port Basque. What happened to him? Yeah, Brian shared an absolutely wild story with me. Uh, Brian lives in Port Basque, Newfoundland, as you said, sort of on the, the southwestern tip of the island of Newfoundland. And last Saturday morning, um, when Fiona hit, he was at his house. Uh, he had decided to spend the night you know, and not evacuate. He changed his mind as the storm, you know, grew worse and the water grew closer and closer. As the waves rose to a really dangerous level, he lives right on the edge of the of the cove in Port Basque. He decided to to make a run for it, and he was at his doorway when a giant wave hit and knocked him down and essentially swept him out to sea. Oh, man. So he he narrowly escaped with his life. I mean, he he described crawling on his hands and knees underwater as the ocean's trying to pull him out to, to, to sea. You know, his deck lands on top of him. He's got rocks flying all over the place. Uh, he showed me his hands after after his ordeal, and they were just black and blue. He'd been beaten up by the ocean. The only reason he survived was his brother 
uh, watched him get knocked down and pulled out to sea by one of these giant waves. And uh, he ran into the ocean to save him, grabbed him by the, the collar and was able to pull him out and drag him to to higher ground. Uh, and and the two of them said they they both thought that he that Brian was going to die and that this they can they're still in shock that he was able to survive that uh, that experience. Wow, and I mean that's maybe the most dramatic story you've heard. But we're now ten days post storm. Uh, you've been traveling around parts of Atlantic Canada and talking to people. I just, for those of us in the rest of the country who, uh, you know, saw saw the pictures of devastation, but maybe uh, haven't seen the last few days, what's it what's it like there right now? There are parts of, of the region where it's still very bad, um, particularly in, in Pictou County, Nova Scotia, and in Cape Breton, um, and in many parts of uh, Prince Edward Island and, and the southwestern corner of Newfoundland. There's still a lot of damage, a lot of trees down, a lot of homes that have been destroyed, in some cases bridges that, that have, were washed out that have not been repaired. A lot of people who still don't have power. I mean, imagine it. we're approaching two weeks since this storm hit. Mm-hmm. You have no running water. A lot of these folks in, in rural communities don't have municipal wells, which means when your power goes out, your water shuts off. So they can't flush toilets. I mean, you can't, your food has long since spoiled. You can't use your cell phone. And, and imagine the level of frustration um, among those folks. So there's, there are thousands of people still in that scenario in Atlantic Canada. Before we talk about what's being done to help them right now, just looking back on the storm itself, how many lives were lost? And what do we know, if anything, about, you know, the cost of this devastation? There must be some insurance estimates about just how much uh, has been destroyed. Yeah, the, on the financial cost, some early estimates were that it would it could be as much as $700 million in insurable losses. Of course, they believe there could be far more that is simply uninsurable, that is not covered by people's private insurance. And that includes things like damage from seawater. There's a lot of home insurance policies that, that exempt damage caused by the ocean for a variety of reasons because it's considered you know a high-risk area mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Those people are learning that in the last couple of days that, that they don't have coverage. They're going to have to turn to, to government to try to bail them out to help them rebuild. In terms of the human cost, we know there were at least three people killed in this storm. Um, one of them was Brian Osmond's neighbor, a 73-year-old woman in Port Basque. She was in her basement last Saturday morning um, when she was trying to retrieve some clothes as, as she and her husband were evacuating. A, a, a giant wave came, uh, smashed th- through the wall and dragged her out to sea, and she drowned. Um, a similar situation happened in eastern Nova Scotia. An elderly man uh, who was too close to the to the edge of the water, who suffered from dementia, he was swept out to sea and drowned. Mm-hmm. And, and a third person, uh, a man in Prince Edward Island, was killed by carbon monoxide poisoning. He survived the storm, but he had, like many people in Atlantic Canada, started up his generator because he had no power. Right. Um, and they, uh, officials believe that he he succumbed because of that generator. Those three deaths are obviously a tragedy, but I think looking at the devastation and the pictures we've seen, I mean, the the easy question is like, how how was it not higher? Were we prepared for this? Did the evacuations work? What do we know? I mean, there certainly there was plenty of warning, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, they tracked this hurricane for days, right? People knew well in advance it was coming. What we didn't know, I guess, is how bad it would be, that in certain areas that it would bring this in, in unprecedented storm surge, which means the the level of the ocean simply rises because the atmospheric pressure is so low. Uh, Fiona it recorded the lowest atmospheric pressure we've ever seen in Canada, which meant the ocean went to levels 
we had never seen. That combined with high tide and combined with hurricane-strength winds pushed the ocean further onto land than it had ever been in many, many areas. Um, so, yeah, people had they had warning. They had notice. Uh, many people were told to evacuate and did. But there are parts of Atlantic Canada where, where hurricanes and storms are very common. And people said, well, we'll, we'll ride this one out. I mean, right. it's very common in September to have hurricane warnings and post-tropical storm warnings in this part of the country. Most of them don't do anything like this. And so people were expecting more of that. Um, and I think some of them were caught by surprise by Fiona. This is probably the million-dollar question, but what do we know about why Fiona was so bad compared to the typical seasonal storms? A number of things. The the trajectory, it, it, it turned inland at the last moment, and it was a, a direct hit on mainland Nova Scotia and, and Cape Breton and, and Prince Edward Island. So sort of the direction that it took, often they kind of skip off of Atlantic Canada and, and sort of deflect and don't do as much damage. Typically, these hurricanes lose a lot of strength as they approach Canada, and the water gets colder. They can't they can't produce as much energy as they did in the Caribbean, and they start to to slow down. Hmm. That didn't happen with the case of Fiona, and and I don't have a clear answer on why it didn't. Just this was an incredibly powerful system, and it also was combined with a Saturday morning where we had high tide in in many parts of the region. All those things combined just for a historically bad storm. In terms of the folks who right now, as you mentioned, in many regions, uh, still without power, uh, some without water, what's being done to help them? And I mean that both in terms of, you know, what's being done to help them be able to rebuild. I understand the prime minister on Tuesday was in the area making an announcement, but also what's being done to help them right now? Like, where are they? How are we helping them? So a lot of those people have moved into temporary housing. You know, some have just simply moved in with family and friends who do have power. I mean, there are some emergency shelters that, that are that are being used just to give people, you know, a hot meal. In Port of Basque, there are folks who've been put up in hotels, you know, temporarily until they can figure out where they're going to go. But I think many of them are, are realizing it's going to be a long time before this is resolved for them. But on the, the the financial side, that both you know provincial governments and the federal government have committed to giving these people some immediate help, you know, some compensation for hotels if they can't stay in their home. Um, there's a federal program that gives people disaster relief. You can apply for it if you've had damage to your house that's not covered by insurance. So those programs are sort of up and running. It is a slow process and slower than some people would like, but they are they are trying to get them some help. What do those people do in the meantime? And I mean, you know, it's one thing to collect the insurance and fix a part of your house, you know, maybe part of the roof has come off or whatever. But to your point, in places like Porta Bass, uh, the houses are just gone. They're destroyed. Like, there's got to be a long waiting period in between collecting that money and actually being able to rebuild or move somewhere else. Absolutely. And for a lot of them, they don't know where they want to rebuild. That's a, that's a big question for them. But you're absolutely right. I mean, they may have the compensation available sooner than, than they might have expected. But then what do you do with it? There's a shortage of contractors in many of these, many of these communities because of the damage. So just getting people who are able to help you rebuild or do repairs uh, is impossible right now. So uh, there's a lot of folks who feel really lost when you talk to them. They just don't know what they're going to do. They don't know where they're going to go, and they don't know how they're going to pay for it, and it, you feel for them. Will some of these places ever be rebuilt? And again, I'm not on the ground there. Uh, you know, I've just seen the pictures and heard descriptions from reporters uh, like yourself, but 
it does look like they've kind of been wiped off the map. And and I just wonder, you know, in this age of climate change and, and villages so close to the sea, you know, how do you decide whether or not it's worth uh, moving everybody back in, in in such a lengthy and expensive process, knowing how vulnerable these places are? I think this is this storm represents a real turning point in the history of a lot of these coastal communities. I mean, I don't think in, in most places people just up and leave, but the folks who are the most affected if you were to ask them, they don't want to come back and live on the edge of the water. Uh, I think in places like Port of Basque, there will be areas where you're no longer allowed to build, right? The province will bring in restrictions that that don't allow buildings on the edge of the ocean in the way that they had been for, for centuries. So I do think a lot of these places are, are going to look very different when they rebuild. People now know that storms like Fiona are possible and you have to be prepared for it. And I think they're going to have to build flood-resistant and hurricane-resistant homes in a way they hadn't had to think about in Atlantic Canada in the past. So those are some tough questions that communities and, you know, at the municipal level and the provincial level are, are dealing with right now. What about at the individual level? One of the reasons we wanted to talk to you in particular is because one of your recent pieces kind of posed the question, you know, what's it like to all of a sudden have to live in fear of the sea after spending your whole life like right next to it and loving it and working on it? Like that's got to be a really difficult question for these people to wrestle with. What do they say to you? I mean, when you talk to them, you hear the trauma. It's This is very real for them. They're still in shock from this. A lot of people who had their homes, just as you said, completely destroyed. There's nothing left for some of these folks. You know, I talked to a lot of people who'd lived in Port of Basque their entire lives, um, you know, who say, look, we were born and bred in bad weather. We're Newfoundlanders. We're used to storms. We're used to, to high winds. This is not, that, that's not something that scares us. But but Fiona, they said, was in a league of its own. Yeah. That changed everything. And and we cannot go back to, to living the way that we were. Um, they said, now when we have storm warnings, you're going to be thinking about Fiona. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that that's a significant statement in a place like Port of Basque, where people have lived on the edge of the ocean for generations, you know. I talked to a lot of seniors in Port of Basque who said, look, we don't care if there's compensation or not. We are not coming back. We will never live here again. We will never feel safe living on the edge of the ocean. Um, I guess after you've been through that, where you've seen your neighbor's home destroyed, where your neighbors, in some cases, were killed by the storm, you know, and other people narrowly escaped with their lives, you don't want to go through that again. And I, I completely understand that sentiment. Often I think in in the time leading up to these storms or even in the, the two or three weeks afterwards, there's kind of this discussion of like this was a once in a century event or this was the worst storm ever possible. And I don't know but about you, but I'd love to hear about the people you're talking to. Is there a feeling that this is less of a like, oh, it's once in a century storm and now just like the realization that this could happen any time? Yeah, I didn't encounter one person who said, well, uh, it'll be another 100 years before we see a storm like this. Not a single person. Everyone raised climate change when you talk to them, uh, uh, you know, in the aftermath of this storm. And they all believe that these storms are becoming more frequent, more severe, more violent, and they are concerned about the future. There's no one doubting that these storms are going to become a more common part of of life for Atlantic Canadians. And, and they say this, we need to start adjusting the way we live accordingly. I also just want to ask about 
the people who are using those shelters right now or who are in temporary housing, um, I've seen some reporting from from all the provinces about just trying to figure out how long it might take until power is restored everywhere. I mean, as you mentioned, we're closing in on two weeks now. Do we have any idea? Is is this just such a rural issue in so many places that they just can't figure it out? Well, I think the scale of the damage is so great that this just so, you know, so much of the power grid has to be rebuilt, right? And we're talking in parts of Cape Breton or Pictou County where there's an awful lot of trees, an awful lot of wires. And it's just, it's like rebuilding an entire power grid. Wow. Um, it just takes an, an incredible amount of time. They're working around the clock to get power back to these people. And certainly, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who lost power in the in the first few hours of the storm had it back within a day or two. But there are still thousands without. Um, I think it's going to be a while yet. You know, there's still military on the ground helping people clean up. There's still homeowners who have trees down on their properties who are trying to get help, who are on a list to have, you know, crews come and help them clear some of that stuff. But just this people need to understand the scale of the destruction is unprecedented. And it just is going to take a long time to clean it all up. What should our listeners in the rest of Canada know about what's needed or what kind of things they can advocate for as, and you know, this happens, uh, a natural disaster hits, the immediate devastation makes all the news reels, and then even after there are stories, you know, like this about what people need, you're telling me it's going to be weeks and months, people are going to probably move on. What does Atlantic Canada need to, to have happen? Uh, well, I'd, I'd say that they need people to continue to support organizations like the Red Cross. The Red Cross are, are, are doing a lot of the work in terms of the, you know, housing people, uh, getting them food, getting them, you know, basic essentials that they need to get through this. Um, and those donations are being matched by the federal government. So it's been a lot of help uh, from, from the Red Cross for, for people here. And I think that's probably the, the biggest thing. I think there's a lot of people who simply, you know, don't know where to go and where to turn and organizations like the Red Cross are, are helping them through a, a very difficult time. Last question for you. Uh, what will your beat be like in the next few weeks? What kinds of stories are you looking to tell out of this? I know something like this can kind of take over a reporter's life in the aftermath. Yeah, I'll be looking to to kind of the communities that are wondering about the the what now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there's of course there's the immediate stuff, the immediate cleanup effort, but I'm I'm also wondering about places that are that are struggling with how do we rebuild. You know, there are parts of Prince Edward Island where you know major uh, pieces of infrastructure, major pieces of of you know their their, their tourism landmarks have been destroyed, like the sand dunes at Cavendish Beach, you know, world-famous beach simply washed away. Wow. You know, a lot of cottages destroyed, a lot of homes that are that are gone. And for an island that's so dependent on tourism, what does that mean? Um, so there's a lot of communities like that that are trying to figure out where do we go now? And I think that's kind of where the reporting is going to turn, is looking ahead as people try to figure this out for the long term. We will hopefully check back in with you as that happens so this doesn't slip. Greg, thank you again for joining us. Uh, stay safe out there while you're traveling around. My pleasure. Thanks, Jordan. Greg Mercer, Atlantic Canada reporter at The Globe and Mail. That was The Big Story. For more big stories, you can go to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can hit episodes and see, I think, just about everyone we've ever done. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN or via email hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. If you are listening to this in a podcast player, make sure you're subscribed or followed or whatever it is they tell you to do. And if you're kind, leave a rating and a review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. 
We'll talk tomorrow.